has that entire speech memorized and I could not get her to do it. Can y'all believe that? <laughs> Next time, right? So Hamlet's soliloquy, to be or not to be, it's perhaps the most famous Shakespearean words that are recorded. If you're not familiar with this play, basically what happens is the king of Denmark has recently died, and his brother Claudius has married the king's widow and has taken the throne for himself. And so Prince Hamlet, he, he struggles with everything that has been taking place. And as the play unfolds, Hamlet begins to suspect that his uncle Claudius actually killed his father, the king, in order to take control of this nation. And so Hamlet, he, he's decided he has to do something about this. So by the time we get to this scene, it's in Act 3, Scene 1, Hamlet's completely distraught, and people are beginning to think he's going crazy. And, and so this all leads him to reciting those now immortal words, to be or not to be. Now, now many scholars agree that Hamlet is contemplating taking his own life here in this scene. And if you look at it from that point of view, Hamlet, he, he sees that living life is a passive part of life. It's just passive. And death is actually the active state of being. But in order to, take, to get to the, active, the state of death, the active state of death, you must act while you are in the passive state of life. And as Hamlet says, therein lies the rub. He's scared. Hamlet is too scared to take his own life because the question is, what if he's wrong? He compares death to sleeping, and so in sleeping we dream, don't we? And we have absolutely no control over the dreams that we have. And so what if, he is thinking, what if when we sleep in death, that death is actually worse than life? Now I know I have not done a very good job of explaining Hamlet to you this morning, and so if you're interested in this play, if you're interested in this story, I encourage you to go watch that actual uh, movie. It's a movie by Sir Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Branagh. He's the actor that plays Hamlet. Or if you really want to get adventurous, if you really want to get adventurous, I encourage you to go out and watch the adapted version of Hamlet known as The Lion King. Amen? All right. Now, the reason I'm telling you all this is because in today's reading, what we have is basically a soliloquy. Now, a soliloquy is whenever there's a character on stage in the play, and he is speaking out his or her own thoughts out loud. The audience can hear everything that he or she is thinking, but the other characters on stage can't hear them. And so normally, these speeches, these soliloquies, they're, they're serious discussion of the innermost parts of themselves, and, and it's used by the playwright for dramatic purposes, now, obviously, the book of Philippians is not a play, but you see it's a letter, and it was supposed to have been read out loud to the congregation, and as such, it operates similar to a play. So we know Paul, he is writing to this congregation in Philippi that he founded several years earlier, and the people there in that congregation, Paul loves them. He cares for them deeply, and he wants, them for the, very, he wants the very best for them. And so Paul, because of the relationship he has with these people, he knows he can speak completely honestly and openly with them, as he does here in this passage. Paul and the Philippian church, they, they have this beautiful relationship, one with the other, that, that allows him to have this deep conversation and bear his soul to them. It's a conversation that he can be honest with everything he's thinking, regardless of what it is. And so these words that flow from his pen onto the page, they're, they're intimate, they're almost sacred. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, 
Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. So these opening words here in this scripture, they, they're the opening words of Paul's soliloquy. He's setting the stage just as Hamlet did with his. Now, now Hamlet's fatal to be or not to be. They, they become Paul's optimistic. Living is Christ and dying is gain. In both of these speeches, the, the speaker is approaching death as this transition but you see, for Hamlet, the, the fear of the unknown of what death is, it, it's keeping him from wanting to move forward from life to death. But you see, Paul, he knows something. He knows something that Hamlet does not know. And, and Paul knows that in death he will be in the presence of the risen Christ. And so for Paul, there, there is no unknown in the death. There is only personal gain. And so that's why Paul doesn't fear death the way Hamlet does. There, there's nothing to be afraid of for any of us who have been buried with Christ in baptism. Now before we move on, I just need to pause here a second because I want us to listen carefully to what I say. Some biblical scholars, they're, they're, claiming, they're claiming that Paul, like Hamlet, that, that he is con contemplating suicide as he writes these words. That they say that he's given up all hope and, and that since death is far superior than life is for the people of faith, then he is considering taking his own life. But you see, that's not what's happening at all here. People who hold that view, they, they fail to understand what the, that we as Christ's followers, that we expect to participate in Christ's sufferings. And, and so joining Christ in the heavenly realm with the saints, that's simply icing on the cake, isn't it? True salvation True salvation is a here and now event, which means that suffering for Christ is a privilege for us. It's an honor that we get to carry with us in our suffering. And so there is absolutely no way that Paul was willing to hasten his, way, his day of death. So let's keep that in mind as we look at what Paul is actually saying here. Basically, he's telling the church in Philippi, there are two options here. There are two options of, of how this whole thing is going to end from this Roman prison. Either I will be released and, and be sent back out to preach and teach and do the things I've been called to do, or the Roman court is going to order me to be executed. That's what's going to happen. That's all there is to it. And so this decision is, is completely outside of his control, isn't it? He can't decide for himself. The Romans will make their decision, and then they will follow through with whatever they have decided. And so that's why Paul is now weighing these two options before the Philippians. And so this first possible outcome is that Paul's going to be put to death. And he says, if I were given the choice, that would be my preference. I am hard-pressed, he says, between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, now, in the Greek word, uh, world of the Philippians, Paul, Paul's sentiment, it would have been well understood by that community. Because from their worldview, death was considered gain because it was a release from all of the troubles that we have in this lifetime. All the troubles that plague us. And in many ways, Hamlet has that same mindset. If he could die, then he, had, he can put away all that garbage. But you see, Paul, he, he goes further than that. He puts a far more positive spin on exactly what he is telling us here. He says, for him, dying is gain, not because of all the stuff he's leaving behind, but instead for the simple fact that he will now be in the presence of Jesus. And so as people of faith, we have this intimate relationship with God, don't we? 
We, we have this intimate relationship with Christ, and in many ways, we view our death as a homecoming, don't we? We get to journey back into the place where we are loved the most deeply. We get to be ushered into the presence of our Father who loves us, and we get to be ushered into the presence of our brother Jesus who died for us. And so Paul, for death, Paul, and for us, it is gain, isn't it, church? It's without a doubt the best thing that could happen for any of our benefit. And therein lies the rub, as Hamlet states. It's a problem. By understanding what our position in the heavenly realm is, the the danger is that, that we begin to forget what it means to be a Christ follower. And that's the dilemma that Paul presents in his soliloquy. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. To remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. You see, Paul, he's not called to death, is he? Paul is called to life. And his life is to be lived out in order to bear fruit, to bear much fruit. And so that's why he says it is more necessary for him to remain on the earth. Not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And in this particular case, the benefit of the Philippians. And so that brings us to today's teaching. A couple of weeks ago, I encouraged all of us to write letters, and I hope you did. I really do. It's a great experience. But I encourage us to write letters to people who have influenced us in positive ways. And my hope was that as we did that activity, that we would begin to understand better how people today have poured their lives into us. They poured their lives into us so that we are better people. So that we understand that because of them, we are in the position that we currently are. And then to take it another step and to actually thank those people for spending the time with us, for pouring the life into us, to, to take their energy and to give it over to us. So this morning, we're going to reverse that idea. The question for us to consider this morning is this. Who have I mentored? Who have I poured my life into? Or, or more precisely, for whom is it necessary that I continue to live, to continue to breathe? As long as we are drawing those breaths into our bodies, we have this opportunity, don't we, church? We, we have an opportunity to teach and to minister and to actually love other people. We, we call this kind of life a living sacrifice. Listen to how Oswald Chambers says it. He, he says, we make the mistake in thinking that the ultimate God wants of us is the sacrifice of death. What God wants is the sacrifice through death, which enables us to do what Jesus did, and that is sacrifice our lives. It is of no value to God to give him your life for death. He wants you to be a living sacrifice, to let him have all of your strengths that you have been saved and sanctified through Jesus. Church, Chambers is 100% right here. If we are to truly be living sacrifices, we must allow God to use all of us, all of our strengths, all of our abilities, our talents, our time, our effort, our energy, not for ourselves, not for our own gain, but instead for the benefit of others. It's been through the Holy Spirit that we have been enriched, haven't we? We've been enriched to do certain things. We have these cert- this certain influence in the lives of other people. Whether we realize it or not, what we say 
And what we do, it matters immensely, both the positive and the negative. Now, one of the richest parts of our heritage that we have received from John Wesley is called the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. We sang it this morning, but let's listen to it again. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Church, we need to remember the words of this prayer. We need to take these words and actually live these words out each and every day. So what's your answer today? It's not a rhetorical question here. Who is it necessary for you to live out your life of faith? Is it your kids? Grandkids? Maybe nieces or nephews? Maybe it's your friends or your co-workers that you see on a regular basis. Maybe it's your small group. Maybe a Sunday school class or your growth group. Maybe it's some ministry that you're involved in that you care deeply about. Thing is, I can't answer the question for you. No one can answer it for you. You're the one who's going to have to take this question and wrestle with it. You're going to be the one to have to seek God's answer through prayer and discernment. You see, Paul, he, he's not certain what to hope for as he awaits the outcome of this trial. But what he does understand is that the needs of the congregation take priority over his own personal desires. Paul, he has this deeply personal faith in Christ. He has this relationship with his Savior, and that, that relationship has sustained him through all of those darkest of days. But he also knows that his faith is never, ever an individual matter. As a member of the broader faith community known as the body of Jesus Christ, the well-being of that community, their faith development, that's what's extremely important here. And so in our contemporary world, we, we hear a lot about the importance of our individual faith. It's about me and Jesus, we say. My faith, my belief. It's always me, me, me. And a lot of Christians today, we, we regard religion as, as this private interest, and we think that the gospel is primarily an offer of this personal salvation from God for us. But biblically speaking, that's a foreign concept, church. Paul reminds us of that this morning in his writings. And so while our individual faith is extremely important, that's not all there is to Christianity. The gospel's wider implications insist that we view our individual faith through the lens of the needs of the bigger community, the larger faith community. 
And that's why Paul goes into so much detail in, in Corinthians and Ephesians about Jesus followers as being the body of Jesus Christ. So as people who claim Jesus as our Messiah, the answer to Cain's question in Genesis is a resounding yes. Yes, we are our brother's and our sister's keeper. It is our job to live a life of sacrifice, a life of pouring ourselves into others, a life of putting off our own desires for the sake of the larger community. And so our calling this morning is to be mindful of who it is that it's necessary for us to remain in the flesh. Not, not asking whether to be or not, but instead asking, how much longer can I be for the sake of the kingdom? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may the grace and peace of Jesus rest upon you today. Amen.